God's Word in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come." And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. One important aspect of any country is the interactions and diplomacy they have with foreign countries. During the early, early years of our nation's founding, one of our most important allies was France. To maintain strong ties, we sent Thomas Jefferson to serve as our diplomat. Now Jefferson had gone before and he loved French cuisine. He loved it so much that when he went for this second assignment, he took with him one of his slaves, James Hemings. As he was there, he had his slave, Mr. Hemings, spend years working with and learning from French chefs. And by learning from the French expert, Hemings was able to become one himself and then able to return to Jefferson's Monticello and prepare similar food. This morning we come to Paul's first prayer in Ephesians, recorded in Ephesians 1, 15-23. Just like his praise in verses 3-14, through 14, this prayer is one long extended sentence. And like James Hemings learning to cook from the best chefs, so we can learn to pray from the Apostle Paul. The topic of prayer brings out mixed emotions from Christians. On the one hand, Christians rejoice for God chooses to answer prayers. We recount the various ways that we've seen situations and people's lives change because God has heard our prayers. We go joyfully to God in prayer as we think of what He has done. Yet on the other hand, Christians are discouraged. Because they prayed for some items, some people over and over, and nothing has seemed to change. They know they shouldn't say, God doesn't answer my prayers, but it sure seems as though their prayers are receiving no response. This has left them only going to prayer out of duty, and they feel constantly guilty about not praying more. Well, when you do pray, what do you pray for? Do you want to pray, but after a few sentences you're stuck and you're not sure what to say? God bless Grandma and Grandpa. Help the day go well. Um, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Amen. We often go into our prayers not knowing even what to pray. Well, Paul's prayer is going to help us to know what we should pray and even how to pray. This morning we're just going to look at two things. Uh, Keith had set everything up, and then I changed a little bit what we're going to do, so we're only going to look at the first two bullet points, 
thanks for faith and love, verses 15 through 16, and then request for illumination. And then next week, we'll pick up knowing our hope and also looking at our glorious inheritance in the saints. But Paul begins his declaration of his prayers by giving thanks for them for two reasons. First, they have faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, this is an interesting statement that Paul gives thanks to God for their faith. Why would he do that? Well, because you give thanks to the person who gives the gift. And the point is this, is that faith is a gift of God. We'll see in a few weeks when we get to Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, what is the it? It is definitely our salvation. It's a gift of God. But I believe the it is also our faith. God gives us faith. Other passages make this clear. In 1 Peter 1.5, we read of God's protecting us. And it says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's power guards us and protects us. But how does God protect us? Through faith. He keeps giving us faith to follow Him. Now this doesn't mean we should be passive. One of the mysteries of Scripture is how both God works and we must work. Thus Philippians 2, 12-13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. So it sounds like Paul is telling him, you need to go do this. You need to go work it out. And he is saying that, but then he adds, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work, Paul is saying in Philippians 2, because God is working in us. We trust God and exercise faith because God gives it to us. We see that also in 2 Timothy 2.25 regarding the flip side of faith. Repentance. Second Timothy, beginning in verse chapter two, beginning in verse twenty-four, it says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. It's up to God whether they will repent or not. Thus, whenever anyone has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we give praise and thanks to God. God is the decisive and primary actor, and thus He gets all the praise. Well, does someone's faith in Christ stir your joy? Does it stir your thanksgiving to God? Jesus tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice when even one sinner repents. Do you? If you hear of someone coming to faith, it's like, ah, okay, great. Or you go, what an amazing event that this person now knows God. If there is a baptism, do you eagerly come to see and hear of God's work in their life? Well, we should rejoice and give thanks to God as Paul does for faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, last phrase is important though. Faith in the Lord Jesus. People nowadays will often say, well, look, it really doesn't matter what you believe, but that you believe. You may know that about 30 years ago, Prince Charles, now King Charles, said that when he became king, he would not be the defender of the faith, he would be the defender of faith. Now he, back in 2014, 
recanted that a little, but he still is saying, well, look, there's a lot of value in other religions. Now, if the issue is that we should be respectful towards people of other faith, then <clears throat> most definitely religious liberty should be for all, not just for us. And saying that I'll be respectful of all faiths is different than saying that all faiths are the same thing. Is all faith good? When I was a teacher, I finished up my lesson for the day, and we had about five or ten minutes left in class, and so I told the students they could have some free time. And one of the students said, would you help me study? I said, oh, yeah, I'm glad to help any student. If they want to study, that's wonderful. And he handed me a piece of paper and said, I want to make sure I have these memorized. And I looked down, and it was the Ten Commandments of Satan. He was a Satanist, and he wanted to make sure he knew the rules correctly. Well, is that good faith? He had faith. He believed it was real. Well, no. Faith is only as good as its object. Paul's not giving thanks that the Ephesians have faith, but that their faith is in the Lord Jesus. That is what matters. Well, second, Paul gives thanks for their love toward all the saints. Now, as we noted in the first sermon, saints is not like some special elite, Navy SEALs of Christians. Saints is all of us. Every person who has come to Christ has been declared holy because of Christ and called to be holy. We are saints. Thus, the Ephesian believers, when it says they have love towards all the saints, it's saying they love all the believers. Now, Jesus calls us to love everyone, even our enemies. Yet there should be a priority in a Christian's love, just as there are a priority in all of our loves. Yes, we should have a love for all humanity, but that looks different based on the relationships we have. If I learn of a child in need with no food or clothing, I will give to help that child. But I have a greater priority and a greater call in my life to provide food and clothing for my children. As Christians, we should love everyone we come in contact with, but the scripture lays on us we have a greater obligation to love our fellow brothers and sisters. As Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he adds, and especially to those who are the household of faith. And since the Ephesians faithfully are doing that, Paul gives thanks to God that they do that. And this is a very important implication that to be a faithful Christian, to be one that's living the life that God wants you to, you must be loving other people. Many of y'all met my friend Richie Goodrich. He's come here a couple times. He's a missionary, was in India, then went to Australia, and now they're actually going to be going to Cambodia. Um, he shared before of a professor telling of a seminary student who graduated, went off to his first pastorate, and they met up later, and he asked the pastor, how's it going? He goes, oh, I love it. So wonderful. I love writing sermons. I love studying God's word. I love preparing. And he said, well, there's one thing I don't really care for. And the seminary professor said, what? He said, the people. Well, you can't be a good pastor and not care about the people. You can't be a good Christian and not care about the people that God has put in your life, specifically the Christians around you. Now, children, I'd like to talk specifically to you for a minute. Because I know that sometimes the hardest person to love is your actual brother or sister. They know the buttons to push 
to make smoke come out your ears and your eyes glow red. They keep doing that same thing, or maybe they're doing that same thing right now, over and over, that your parents told you to forgive them for. And right now, forgiveness doesn't seem that great, but a chokehold seems pretty wonderful. Yet God says in 1 John 3.14, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now that verse is talking to Christian brothers, but the implication is those in our midst. And Jesus told us to love even our enemies. And you might think at times your brother and sister is your enemy. But you're called to love them and to do good to them. You know, though, and so do I, that it is very, very challenging to love someone who day after day does things that annoy you. However, when you think about what you and I do to God every day, it's not that different. Every day we have sinful attitudes, sinful actions, and sinful desires. And we've seen as we've gone through Ephesians that God has forgiven us for that completely. He knew how we would continue to sin, and yet day by day He gives us new and fresh grace. Day by day He forgives us. Not only does He forgive us, He adopts us and calls us His beloved children. So God calls you not merely to tolerate your siblings, not merely to forgive them but hope they leave you alone, but to love them as God loves you. That means to actively seek to do them good, to seek ways to bless their life, not just passively avoid them. And we all know that loving is a hard thing not just for children but for all of us. Not merely that we're called to be kind and socially polite. Not that we're merely to bite our tongue and hold back what we really want to say. We are all called to actively love others. And as we saw in 1 John, this is one of the fruits of the reality of our faith. And this is going to imply some things. You can't love people if you don't know them. So you have to take tangible steps. You have to sacrifice time, energy, and go be with people. You have to invite them over. You have to talk to them. You have to want to get to know them. So who do you care and love specifically in this local body? Who are you interacting with outside of Sunday morning or Wednesday night? Now, please don't miss here. I don't think the call is that we all become extroverts. We don't all need to now go out and become the party person. But in the personalities and the places God's given us, we need to look around and go, who is around me and who is God calling me to love? To actively seek, how could I do that person good? And along with God calling us to live this way, our love for one another is often one of our greatest witnesses. You know, I've shared before of Mez McConnell. He was a man who grew up in Scotland in a very broken home. He was treated very horribly. And he ended up often on the streets and in juvenile detention centers. But then as he became a young adult, he became connected with some Christians. And he was amazed at how the Christians he knew really cared for one another. And he said, I would have taken a knife for my friends back on the streets of Scotland. But I didn't really care about them. 
It was just this code of honor. But these Christians, who probably be too scared to take a knife, they actually care for one another. They love each other. It was as Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so this love needs to challenge us. Do we have a love for one another in this room? God is calling us not just to show up to religious events. He's calling us not just to come and gather and worship with people, but that our lives would be intertwined, that we would be caring and knowing for one another. And a similar application of loving people applies to our praying. And that is we often don't pray because we don't plan to pray. Most people don't fall into good habits. We must make a conscious choice to set aside a time. And may I also encourage you to enter that time with a plan. You know, right now I was listening to a sermon and said, okay, I'm going to go home and pray. I'll pray at 3.30. Well, I'll probably get to 3.30 and it probably looks something like this. God, thank you for your grace in the Lord Jesus. I come now to pray for uh, the people of the church. Would you help us to trust you, love one another? Um, wow, it's been 15 seconds. Um, yes, people have been sick. Would you please heal them and help them in that hard situation to trust you? And, um, and I could go on, but I think the point is clear. If we don't go into our time of prayer with these are the people I want to pray for and these are the things I want to pray for them, we often sit there and go, uh, I don't really know what to say. And so we need to enter our prayers with a plan. Now what I'm about to share is a way I've done this, but I need to be clear. This is not, wow, Pastor Jeremy is a prayer warrior. As I prepared for this week, it reminded me how weak my prayer life often is. But sometimes it's helpful to hear what other people do. So what my regular practice is, is that on weekday mornings, after I read, I pray for specific family members. Family members in my household and family members outside. So Monday, I'm praying for Oma and Opa and Uncle Jonathan and his wife. Tuesday, I'm praying for the next set. And that way I know, not just, oh yeah, I'm going to pray for them. I have a specific time. I have a list here at the church with everyone's name and all their children. And I split it up. So I pray for every single one of you every week. And on the back side, there's a list of scriptures of things to pray for. So I don't just go, God, would you bless them and them and them and them? Okay, done. Next thing. But there I'm praying in a way that God would bless you based on what his word wants to see worked in our life. Now, yes, a list can become a legalistic thing. You could do, okay, there's A through F. I prayed through A through F. I'm done. But it can also be a helpful tool to go, hey, I want to pray for these people. And when I go to prayer, I forget about who's in our church. My mind goes, Phew. And so I go saying, Lord, today, help me as I pray for these people. Help it not to be a routine. Help it not to be Monday A through F. Help it be that I care about these people and that I'm praying for them. As the old adage goes, failing to plan is planning to fail. So plan when and what you'll pray for. My strategy works all right for me. There's a lot of other strategies that could be helpful for you. But we're about to turn to Paul's first request. But let's briefly note the importance of Paul's beginning with thanksgiving. Notice that his prayer begins with his thanks 
for them. And this is important because if you're trying to pray for someone, the best thing to do is not pray for the thing that most bothers you about them. Now the thing that bothers you about them might even be a sin. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for that. I'm saying don't make that the regular thing you pray for them. Because this is what's going to happen. You're going to pray for them day after day that they're going to get over their anger or their carelessness or their rudeness. And day by day, as you remind yourself, you're going to become more and more bitter. I've even been praying for this and they're still not changing. God even won't change them in this. Give thanks for the good things God has done in their life. Everyone has some good. Some people you need to dig a little more, but everyone has some good. So in your prayers, begin with giving thanks for what God has done in their life. And then, yes, from time to time, pray for their anger. Pray for their grumpiness, whatever the situation may be. But make the focus of your prayer not be this one sin, but all of their life and how God should work for them and in them. Oh, well, this morning turn to the one major thing Paul prays for, and it's this umbrella that will then lead to three other things that we'll look at in future weeks. But the umbrella request is a request for illumination. That's in verses 17 through 18a. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then there's a that, and he'll give three things that he's praying that they'll have enlightenment for. But Paul begins his request by asking God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to act. One helpful thing as you study scriptures, you read the Bible, is to notice the way God is referred to in various passages. They're often very purposeful. Here, he specifically calls God the Father of glory. Now, why would he do that? Well, because as one commentator noted, glory often refers to that which makes God visible or his activity of making himself visible. So when Paul's going to pray that they will know God, he prays to the God who wants to make himself known. He's highlighting that's God's character. And we see this throughout the Bible. When Stephen has a sermon in Acts 7 2, he tells of the God of glory appearing to Father Abraham. Or you may know the famous story of Moses on the mountain and he says to God, show me your glory. And then God reveals not his whole character and being, but he covers Moses' face. And then after he passes, he allows Moses to see the after effects. God's glory is so great and our sin so destructive that Moses in his sin could not look at God. More than those great revelations, God sent his son Jesus to reveal the glory of God. That's John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus will later tell his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, not in the fullness of his glory, because Jesus veiled that except in his transfiguration, yet in his life, in his manner and his actions, Jesus did show God's glory by glorifying God. And since Paul knows God is the one who wants to reveal himself, he's the God of glory, he asked that, he, that God would give the Ephesians a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, 
Paul prays for them to know God better. You know, we need a supernatural work from God to see God as he truly is. You know, anyone can observe the facts about God, but we need a spiritual illumination to truly grasp them. The problem is that we are like the Gentiles described later in Ephesians in chapter 4 verse 18. We are darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. Our ignorance keeps us blinded to who God really is. But we also read in 2 Corinthians 4.4, In their case, the God of this world, that being Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And we can look at other scriptures that talk about the world blinding us. Our sin, the world, the devil, they want to blind us to what is truly glorious, God, and look at all these other things. Thus Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's flip there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we will look at verses 10 through 14. So back just a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 14, God's Word says, beginning in verse 10, sorry, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, that's an unsaved person, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul is reminding us that we have to have the Spirit of God to know spiritual things. That's why when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus didn't praise Peter. He didn't say, Peter, man, you really put it all together. Or Peter, you're really insightful. You know, these other guys haven't figured it out yet, but you you connected the dots. No, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't figure it out. But my Father who is in heaven. This is where we begin. That God gives us faith and love. And thus we give thanks to Him when those are manifested in anyone's life. And this should really create in us a deep graciousness and kindness to those who don't believe. And sometimes we will wrongly think, oh, how could they ever think that? They are so dumb. Or how could they ever do that? Well, we should say, except for the grace of God, I would believe something like that, or maybe even dumber. Except for the grace of God, I would be stuck in a sin like that, or maybe even worse. I'm better, not because I've had great spiritual insight, but God has given me eyes to see. So Paul declares that we know God more deeply, back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, So he's calling for us to know God more. And he says, we'll know God more deeply when the eyes of our heart, he says in verse 18, are enlightened. Now when the Bible talks about heart, it's not referring to this physical organ here in our chest. 
is rather an all-encompassing term. It refers to our intellect, our will, our emotions. And the point is, look, we don't just need new facts for our mind, but rather down to the core of who we are, we need to see God in a new way. We need the Spirit of God to illumine Christ in such a way that the blinders of our personal indwelling sin, the blinders that the world puts on, the blinders of Satan are removed, and we see the glory of God in Christ. And yet, you may be wondering, well, hold on, just last week, verses 13 and 14, we saw that we are sealed, past tense with the Spirit. We saw that we are given, verse 14, the guarantee of the Spirit. So why are we praying for the Spirit to come in our life? If we already have the Spirit of God. Well, you've probably heard the stories of children. They grew up in a war-ravaged country. They lived on the streets, getting whatever food they could find. Any scraps. And then, by God's kindness, they are pulled out. They are adopted into a couple's home here in the U.S. And they have their own bedroom. They have all the clothes they want. Pantry full of food. Refrigerator. And everything seems great until one day the parents begin to notice something's a little amiss. And then as they do a little digging, they find in the closet a pile of food. You know, they've told the kid over and over to his head, you'll have all the food you want. You'll never go hungry again. And yet, but down to the kid's heart, he hasn't grasped it. He's still living as though, I got to take care of myself. I may not have food for tomorrow. In the same way, we've been brought into a new home. We are now filled with the Spirit, and yet our flesh still wonders, oh, is all this really true? Is all this really going to happen? And we need the Spirit to keep working in us, to know God better, to fully grasp everything that is true of what God has said, us, said to us. As throughout the New Testament, the Bible tells of things that are already ours, like we're sealed with the Spirit, but that we have not yet fully grasped or known. Sometimes it's like that adopted child. We've not grasped our current wealth. Other times it's that the fullness of Jesus' redemption won't be known till he returns. But we should seek and pray that the Spirit would be illumining us, that the Spirit would fill us. I think Don Carson says this really well. He says, Although I think it is extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it's no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent, orthodox but ossified, sound but soundly asleep. Thus we need to do what Hosea 6.3 says, Let us know, let us Press on to know the Lord. You know, let's pray that we're not content with our current walk with Christ. That we hope a month from now, a year from now, a decade from now, we'll have more love, more trust, a deeper knowledge and joy in God. Paul wanted that. That's what was read earlier. Philippians 3, verses 8-10 through 10 said, Indeed, I count everything as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
And then he adds, that I may, present tense, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I want more. I'm not content where I am now. I want to press on to know the Lord. Everything is worth sacrificing for knowing Christ. As we sang earlier, knowing you, Jesus, there is no better thing. You're my all. You're the best. You're my joy and my righteousness. And our growth in knowing God is much like the farmer. He must pray for God to send the rain. And he also goes out and he plants seeds. And then he comes out and he removes weeds. And then he's got to be ready at harvest time. So we don't just go home and pray, God, help me to know you more. All right, let's just go back and hope that tomorrow I wake up zapped with a little bit more knowledge of God. If we want to know God more, we pray. And like the farmer, we act. We dig into God's word. We talk with other Christians. We listen to sermons. We read other books. We do things that will help us. And we pray. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. A couple years ago, a family visited our church. And afterwards, the dad, we were standing right back there in the back. He asked me, what is the biggest need of your church? I wonder how you'd answer that. What is the biggest need of WFBC? More people? Well, definitely that'd be great to have. I pray that God brings current believers here. I also pray that he would bring unbelievers in and they would become saved. But I don't think that's our biggest need. Do we need more money? Well, it sure would be nice to have two financial quarters in a row where we are in the positive. But God has always provided do we need to be more evangelistic? Well, yes, we need that. But those are all needs. And though they're all big needs, the greatest need that every Christian and every church has is to know God more. As we come to know God more, then we will want to be more evangelistic. As we know God more, we'll want to have more faith in Christ. We'll want to love one another more. So when you pray for me, for your friends, for yourself, for WFSC, would you pray exactly what Ephesians 1, 17 through 18 says? God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of you. Would you allow the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened? You know, when you don't know what to pray, pray the prayers in Scripture. As you begin reading in the morning or whatever you read and when you pray, you can pray Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. This is, again, someone who's already a believer writing, saying, God, would you open my eyes afresh to see new and wonderful things from your law? You can pray that for every person you know. God, would you, pray, would you bless so-and-so that you would open their eyes to see new things as they look at your word today? And tragically, Satan has made a masterful stroke when he convinced our culture that you don't, if you don't have warm feelings about something, it's not valuable. You know, sometimes people go, well, you know, I pray, but I just, I just didn't feel very excited. I didn't feel very energetic. You know, I read my Bible, but I just didn't really feel enthused while I was doing it. Well, I do pray that we do have times where prayers come spontaneously and joyfully, 
But sometimes we need to just come to prayer and say, God, right now I'm not a pray- in a praying mood. But I love you and I love these people. So I'm going to pray right now. You know, I thank you that your son's perfect. He was never fickle in his love. But because of him, I can come to you. So hear these fickle prayers. And as you say, your spirit will intercede when we have groaning, with groanings deeper than words, when we don't know what to pray. And so just be honest before God. And at the end of that prayer, you may not be exhilarated. You might feel worn out. And you may think, I didn't accomplish a thing. And yet the goal of prayer is not to accomplish a task. It's to talk to and be with the one who is worth knowing and being with. It's in trusting to him, the people that ultimately we care about and we can't change who they are. It's coming to him, laying those burdens before him, whether you feel wonderful doing it or not. Well, a few years ago I shared this story and it seems a fitting conclusion for our sermon today. Uh, Gene Weingarten writes that on Friday, January 12th, 2007, at 7.51 in the morning, a fairly nondescript young man in jeans and a long-sleeved t-shirt opened up a violin case at a train metro station in Washington, D.C. He threw a couple dollars into the case and he began to play. And over the next 43 minutes, he performed six pieces And because someone was watching this, they tallied that 1,097 people passed by. In the time that he played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance, at least for a minute. 27 people gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. That leaves the 1,070 people who hurried by, oblivious, many only three feet away, few even turning to look. What they were oblivious to was that the man playing was Josh Bell, the world-renowned violinist playing with all his heart six of the greatest classical pieces of all time on his $3.5 million Stradivari violin. He, however, barely anyone even noticed. Only one person completely stopped and took it all in. What was it that excellence and beauty, why was it, sorry, that excellence and beauty were right there before them and they didn't notice? Josh Bell found it odd. Reflecting later, he said, it was a strange feeling that people were actually, uh, the word doesn't come easily, ignoring me. You know, nights before, he'd played at a concert in Washington, D.C., where tickets were hundreds of dollars. And now anyone, for free, could stop and listen. The only person who did stop and listen said, it was the most astonishing thing I ever saw. Joshua Bell was standing there playing at rush hour. People were not stopping and they were tossing him quarters. We get so busy. We're rushing to this, got to get this done, got to get them fed, got to get to the next thing. And right in front of us is the most wonderful thing. There's a thing that is best. You don't let your life Direct you, direct your life. Stop and know, press on to know the one who is worth being known. You know, unlike Thomas Jefferson's servant, you don't have to move to another country to learn from the best. We have God's word anywhere you are. And so let us press on. Let us recognize 
that before us we have the greatest thing. So let us press on to know the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do have the cares of life. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need shelters. We need all these important things. And we can live caring for all those and honoring you. And yet often, Lord, those things squeeze out. Those things, our sin, the devil, they blind us to what is really glorious. So Lord, would you help us as a church to have eyes, to have hearts that see the glory of your Son, that are rejoicing in who he is. Lord, would you work in us that we would be like the church in Ephesus, who our faith firmly planted in your Son, Jesus Christ, and our love being extended to one another in tangible ways. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.